Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Read uh, verses 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augusta that all the world should be registered. This was the first registra- registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to back up and read a few verses in a few minutes uh, from Luke 1. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be talking today, the third in our series here for the Christmas season. And this message will be entitled or is entitled, Jesus the Triumph of Peace. Jesus the Triumph of Peace. It's an understatement to say that peace is in short supply these days. Wars and rumors of wars around the globe. There's a surplus of strife coming from every direction, even coming from within Christianity. Sadly, if a a Christian is not actively stirring up fear or anger, they're considered to be weak or out of touch these days. But two weeks ago, we explored our desperate need of peace. Peace, that need came from the fact that mankind, Adam and Eve, remember, fell in sin and plunged all of us into sin. If we are left to ourselves, we are tragically without any hope. Last week, we learned that in the Old Testament, Yahweh prophesied that He would bring peace to His people 
And he would do that through the Messiah. And the hope that we lost in Adam and Eve, we find offered to us, or would be offered to us in Messiah. So once again, there is hope before us. But those were only prophecies. Those were promises. What's the reality? Has it happened yet? Well, as you know, it's been over 2,000 years since Messiah came to the earth. And we may wonder, why is there still a shortage of peace? Very little peace sometimes in the world. Sometimes even very little peace within Christianity. Well, we do know, as Kevin's been teaching in Sunday school, and as we're going to see as we get on into Ephesians 6 in a while, we know why there's very little peace still. Behind all of that are the schemes of the devil, the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness, as Paul put it. The devil schemes to bring about fear and anger, strife. But, remember, we're not without hope because there is a gracious purpose in all of that. God sovereignly allows those forces a measure of success in order to show us, to remind us of our our need for peace so that we would look to Him. See, as we, every time you look at the news or it, it comes after you as it does, it bombards us and you see the lack of peace everywhere, sometimes within our families, sometimes within our churches, sometimes in our neighborhoods, just from every direction, as you see that, remember that there is a gracious purpose in it. God wants us to see our desperate need of peace. You see, before we can ever get to the good news, we need to know what is the bad news that we often will put it that way. We need to understand what what is our situation? What is it that we need? We need we need peace. And true peace can only be found in one place. This morning we're going to examine the initial fulfillment of God's promise of peace. We saw last time that He promised, Yahweh promised to provide peace through the Messiah. And so man's hope for peace has become a reality. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. In Jesus, we lay hold of the peace that God promises to those who trust Him. In Jesus, we lay hold of the peace that God promises to those who trust in Him, who trust in Jesus. And we're going to see how God does provide peace, both with God and peace with men. On this Christmas Eve, let each of us consider, how is it that we need, and ask yourself, how do I need this peace? Many of you are still God's enemy. You still need to be reconciled to Him. What about those who are believers? Ask yourself, how do you need to improve in promoting peace among God's people? 
Remember, we saw earlier in, in our study of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 3, that we must be diligent to preserve that bond of peace. We've been given peace in Christ, those of us who are believers, and we need to be diligent to preserve that bond of peace. The devil schemes to bring strife. But God's Holy Spirit produces peace. Who will you follow? If you're busy stirring up strife, contributing to stirring up strife, you're following the devil in that. But if you're promoting peace, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. As we break this down, our first point will be this. Jesus embodies God's promise of peace. Jesus embodies God's promise of peace. I'm going to say three things about that. We're going to work our way through this um, before we get into the next major points. First, Jesus' advent, His coming the first time when He came over 2,000 years ago, it was prophesied and announced. His advent was prophesied and announced. That kind of ties us in with last week. That was what last week was about was about the Messiah who would come, that God promised to send Messiah. And Jesus is that Messiah. And that's what we're going to see a little bit today as we look at this. And we, we had our scripture reading earlier, and we saw that it was uh, that prophecy was then announced. What I want to look at first for just a moment, you remember last week when we looked at Isaiah 9-6, and we said that there, the way that Isaiah phrased that, the Holy Spirit had him phrase that, it pointed out, both the humanity and the deity of this one, this Messiah who would come. And so we said that when when Isaiah said, a child will be born to us, that reflected Messiah's humanity. He would actually be born. Then he said, a son would be given to us. So as son, that is son of God, he would be given to us, not born. So, Jesus, as the, as the Son of God, was not born as the Son of Man. He was. So you have both of those there. Well, we also find this in Jesus' own words in John eighteen thirty seven. So we can go ahead and go to the next slide. And I've laid it out in a chart here. You might remember when Jesus was talking to Pilate. And he says, are you a king? And Jesus replied, you say correctly that I am a king. And then notice what he said. Jesus said, For this I have been born. Again, picks up his humanity, right? Just like Isaiah 9, 6. And so you can see, Jesus is the Word, so he was quite familiar with the Old Testament Word of God because it was he who, through the Spirit, gave that Word. And he himself is the Word. And so it's not surprising to see that he's reflecting what had been prophesied about him. For this I have been born... That's his humanity. And for this, I have come into the world from outside. Each of us, when we are born, we're not coming from the outside. We're not coming from outside of this world. We are conceived and born here in this world. We have always existed in this world. But not Jesus, because he is God the Son. And and so as God the Son, he came into this world. So you see there again, just paralleling with Isaiah 9, 6, the humanity and the deity of Jesus reflected in those words. And so these are some of the fruits of, of Bible study. When you get in and you dig and you, you think about what these phrases are saying, uh, you see such rich truth comes out where it was prophesied that he would be 
human and divine. And Jesus recognized that himself, obviously, because he's God the Son, and he proclaimed that to Pilate. Yes, I am a king, and I'm a king like no other, human and divine. Now, before Jesus was born, you remember that Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, uh, prophesied. And once his, his you know mouth was opened again where he could talk, and he prophesied, um, and, and he said in Luke 1, beginning in verse 68, he, he's actually prophesying now about Messiah. Messiah, Jesus wasn't born just yet. So, he's saying this is what's coming. This is what God is doing in all of this. Recognizing that his son was the forerunner that was prophesied in Isaiah. This one who would come before the Lord. Well, who's the one that will follow his son? Who would follow that forerunner? It would be Jesus. And so, here he's prophesying about Jesus Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. And I hear He's speaking as if Jesus has come and provided redemption. Why? Because He knows that God is sovereign. God has already planned this in eternity past. He has now... It is, it's as good as done. He has accomplished it. He has accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And what that means is a powerful Savior. Okay, so He's already talking about this one who would be born, this little baby that we think about this time of year, lying in a manger, helpless, completely dependent upon His mother and father. And yet He is this horn of salvation. He is a powerful Savior that God has sent into the world. In the house of David, his servant. In other words, he'd be that son of David. He would reign on David's throne one day. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That's what we talked about last week. Verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And there's, he has a lot more to say. But we're, we want to just look at that this morning. To see that here again, Jesus is the the Messiah, the promise of peace is being prophesied. So he's tying that in with what we talked about from the Old Testament. There's a lot more out there too. But how God would provide peace through Messiah. And now here in the days of Messiah, he's coming soon. The prophecy is given again. He would be the one that's now going to follow John the Baptist, Zechariah's son. Now, after this, as our brother Dan read just a bit ago, chapter 2 of Luke, we find that what was prophesied is now announced. And so you remember that verse that it's one of these that we hear a lot and sing about this time of year. Verse 14, Luke 2.14, the angels are praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is Please, so Messiah is was prophesied. Now he's announced. The angel saying, "This is the one the prophecies all spoke of," telling the shepherds, and then they went and told Mary and Joseph, and announcing, "This is the one." 
So his advent, Jesus' advent, was prophesied and announced. But it's astonishing to think that Jesus, and God through Jesus, offers this peace to us. Now I know, especially coming from where we are in Western civilization, it, and, and especially with you know Christianity all around us in various forms, and we grow up with this kind of thinking, you know, about God and Jesus and everything. And we don't tend to think in terms of, you know, it's really astounding that God would actually offer peace to us. We think too little upon the infraction of Adam and Eve. We think too little of our own infractions, our own sins. And we don't realize how astonishing it is that God would actually offer us peace. And we sinned against Him. He provided mankind with this perfect garden to live in. Created them to be without sin at that point. Perfect at that point. Innocent. He gave them only one rule. And it wasn't like the 300 and some odd whatever in the Old Testament. One. He was so good to them. And they chose to just shake their fist in his face. No, I'm going to do what I want to do. So it's astonishing that he would offer us peace. You might remember back in Acts 10, as the church has now started, after Jesus had risen and and been ascended to heaven, and the gospel is spreading throughout Jerusalem and Judea, But it's also getting out past beyond the Jews. The gospel makes it to the Gentiles in a, in a formal way. And you remember the story of, of Peter when God called him to go and preach the gospel to Cornelius and his house. And so talking to Cornelius' household, Peter said that God was preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Again, it's astonishing to think that. We, we read that and we think, okay, yeah, okay, noted. But we don't really think about what that means. We don't think about how astonishing it is that God would offer peace to those that prior to them, Jews, now these Gentiles, and how He has offered peace to you and me. How astonishing it is. I'm going to be talking today to, to both groups here. Those of you that are still lost, you still have not put your trust in Christ and followed Him, uh, and those of us who have. So the first group, sinner. The Almighty King calls to you. He offers you to be reconciled to Him. Think about that. The Almighty King. He calls out to you. He offers. He is here this morning through the Scriptures and my words offering to you to be reconciled with Him. Do you see that? Do you see the importance of that? Do you see the glory in that? That God would say, I want you to be reconciled to me and I'm offering this peace to you. Do you see that, sinner? Or will you spurn his offer? Listen to Micah 7.18. The glory in this. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant? 
Why does he do that? Micah tells us because he delights in unchanging love. This is our God we're talking about. He is, he's not a God that says, okay, you know, one time and you're out and it's over. No chance. No, he says to, to fallen humans like you and me, come to me, be reconciled to me. Oh, how, how glorious that is. And, and for you, believer, does that move you to worship? Does it make you eager to get to our next song and, and to praise again and worship again? Joy to the world, I, I think, right? Especially remember, yeah. <clears throat> Are you ready to sing joy to the world and, and praise the Savior, praise our God who offers this to us? And those of us who have followed Him. And to see that He is right now offering it to other sinners just like us. Are we ready to worship Him again? It's astonishing that He offers us peace. And then, to this main point, Jesus embodies peace. You remember last week we saw in Micah 5, verse 5, the first phrase there talks about Messiah. It says, this one will be our peace. He doesn't say He will bring peace. That is true. That's not what He says there. Micah said, talking about Messiah, talking about Jesus, we now know, this one will be our peace. And we said that he embodies peace. Well, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And just as we saw earlier, a a fulfillment of an Old Testament passage in in very direct ways. We're going to see it again here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, just the very first phrase. Talking about Christ, there at the end of verse 13, Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.14 says, For He Himself is our peace. Bringing out the fact that He embodies peace. It's not just that He brings peace. He is our peace. You see, peace here in this phrase that Jesus is our peace, it's not an abstract theological idea. Peace is a person. Let that sink in. Peace is a person. And Paul's not saying that Jesus is just a peacemaker. He says He embodies peace. He embodies peace for those who trust in Him. Jesus is peace personified. What does that mean? As we said before, you have to have this vital connection to Jesus in order to have this peace. You have to put your trust in Him. You have to have this personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just that you believe the right things about Him. It's not just that you recognize that He's there. It is that you have a personal relationship with Him. You have to have that personal relationship. That is how you have peace. And as Paul talks about it here in Ephesians especially, in many other places, you have to be in Christ. That's talking about this this close, personal, intimate relationship that we have with Jesus when we put our trust in Him. And we are, if you will, spiritually in Him. Lord... We said that Jesus embodies God's promise of peace. Now second, Jesus brings peace with God. Jesus brings peace with 
God. We're going to come back to these verses in Ephesians 2 in just a minute when we talk about peace among men. But first, we need to look at how it is that we come to peace with God. See, any peace that we are going to have with men, with one another, with people out there, any peace that we're going to have, it has to be built on the foundation of our peace with God. You see, because we can't have, and you just look at the world, why don't we have peace? Because there's so many who are not at peace with God. We have to be at peace with God first. That is the most important thing. A lot of people do it the other way. They put it, no, peace with men, that's what we want. You know, that's what the Jews were looking for. They thought they were right with God already. But no, we have to be made right with God. We have to be at peace with God first. And and built on that foundation is where peace with men will come. So, Ephesians 2, let's look at verses 16 through 18. And we're focusing at this point on our peace with God. Okay? So, verse 16, he's talking about that how... uh, Christ Himself in His body, He might reconcile them, talking about Jews and Gentiles, reconcile them both in one body to God. Reconcile them to God through the cross. Having by it, or by it having put to death the enmity, the hostility between us and God. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles. And peace to those who are near, Jews. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So Jesus reconciled us to God. And that made us to be at peace with God. It gave us peace with God. That's how we are made to be at peace with God. We have to be reconciled. See, there has to be this process that happens where we're now reconciled with God before we can have this peace. And we're going to talk about what both of these things mean, reconciliation and peace. We saw two weeks ago that our sin, it's our sin that alienates us from God. See, when, when Adam fell, it, he plunged the whole race into this hostility toward God and we're now alienated from God. Now there's this, this enormous chasm that we can't cross. We're alienated from Him because of our sin. But as we've said, amazingly, God takes the initiative to reconcile with us. He has to, because we, we, we could not, and we would not. We, we had no will to do it, and, and we had no ability to do it to reconcile with Him. It wasn't possible. He had to take the initiative, and He did. Now, let's talk about this word for reconcile. The basic form of the word reconcile means... Uh, in, in the the Greek word to exchange enmity, this hostility, being enemies, to exchange that for friendship, as Leon Morris put it. But Paul wasn't happy with that basic word. He was trying to show something even more profound than that. And so he added a preposition to it in order to intensify it. He wanted to show that there is no remaining enmity between God and the person who trusts in Christ. No remaining enmity. In other words, hostility was thoroughly exchanged for friendship. And that's the idea behind the intensified word. It's a thorough exchange. So we had this hostility between us and God. And and something needed to be done with that. 
And what reconciliation does is it takes that hostility and it completely removes it thoroughly, but then thoroughly replaces it with this friendship with God. You see, so hostility is thoroughly exchanged for friendship. And so to kind of look at it another way, reconciliation is the bringing together of two formerly hostile parties. Here first, we're talking about God and us. We were hostile to one another. We sinned against Him, and His wrath abided upon us. And it produces a relationship that is characterized by peace. You see, it's not just that God's wrath was pacified, satisfied. It, it was, but that's, it's more than that. You see, we are now at peace with Him. It's not just that the penalty is taken out of the way. It's that peace is put so that we now have this peaceful relationship with God. We have this, that, it, that is a friendship. Remember, Jesus called His disciples. He said, I, call, I called you friends. There's, it's a different relationship now. How did that happen? We're just going to talk briefly about this. We've, we've talked about it before in our study of Ephesians. But Paul said in Colossians 1.20 that God would reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And so through the blood of Jesus' cross, that's where God did first to take the penalty out of the way. Because Jesus, by His blood, paid for that penalty. He satisfied the wrath of God. But that wasn't all. He also reconciled us by making peace. You see, we often think about the blood of Christ being that which you know deals with that penalty. But we don't think about that the blood of His cross brought us peace. And that's been the theme in these lessons about our need for peace and how God provides peace. And He provides that peace through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ, the one who was born that we have sung about, the babe who lay in the manger. How does this happen then? How how do I... Get this peace. If I am at enmity with God, if I am His enemy. Well, you see, when we put our trust in Christ, we are justified by faith. Trust and faith, same thing. Okay, It's saying that, okay, I, I maybe have been trying to earn my own you know, salvation. I, I want to earn you know, the right for God to love me. I want to earn His love. I want to, okay, I'll keep His law. I'll do all the things I need to do. And to say, I've got to stop that. Because I'm not only getting not getting anywhere, but I'm making it worse. I have to put my trust in what Jesus did on the cross. I have to rest in that. That's what trusting and that's what faith is. It means that I'm just, I'm putting all of my weight on it. I'm just resting on that. Saying, okay... For me to be right with God, for me to spend eternity with Him in heaven, I have to rest in the work of Jesus. And so if you think about that work of Jesus, I just need to rest in that and stop trying to rest in my own work. To stop 
trying to, you know, do whatever it is to, to get God to like me and love me. And no, I just have to put my trust in Him. Saying that, so that, and I like to picture it this way, sinner, think of this. You will stand before Christ. You will stand before God one day. Every one of us will. And, and if he were to, if, if someone were to say, what makes you think that you have a right to come into heaven? The only right answer is to say it's because of what that one did sitting at God's right hand. It's what Jesus did. I have nothing to bring but my sin. I can't do anything good. I have to rest on what Jesus did. And I trust in Him. Because He promised that if I put my trust in Him, He will save me. And He has saved me. And He will give me life eternal. So when we trust in Christ, we're justified by faith, according to Romans 5.1. And so, because we were justified by faith, and in other words, He's declared us righteous. That's what that means. If we put our trust in Christ, then God says, you are righteous. He declares it. He doesn't wait for you to become righteous because that will never happen. He declares you righteous if you trust in Him. And when you're justified, it says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Romans 5.10, it is through the death of His Son. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20 talks about how peace comes to us when we are saved. It is through salvation. It is through trusting in Christ where He justifies us. He declares us righteous. He applies His blood to our sin to wipe it out. And He gives us the peace that He embodies. What is this peace then? For believers, peace is a genuine friendship expressed in a loving bond. We talked about that when we were in Ephesians. Peace is a genuine friendship expressed in a loving bond. And the Greek word expresses the Hebrew idea of peace, shalom. Shalom means that in our relationship with God now, once we trust in Christ, we experience this idea of completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. And it's Jesus that provides that. Jesus promised in John fourteen twenty seven, telling His disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And so let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And D.A. Carson explained it this way. He said that this peace, Christ's peace, garrisons our hearts and minds against the invasion of anxiety. So it's like he puts a fortress, his peace puts a fortress around us so that anxiety can't invade. It's like a garrison. Anxiety is replaced with confidence in God's sovereign care and his goodness. And Jesus called this my peace, his peace. What do you mean by that? Well, first, it was it came through his death. He's the one that, that earned this, secured it. He fully dealt with sin through his death on the cross. He reconciled us to God. We will never be separated from God again. See, Jesus is saying this is my peace because 
I embody peace, he says. I am this peace. And I give you myself. See, there's that personal relationship again. Jesus offers himself to us. Dear sinner, is God working to reconcile you to himself? Do you, have you sensed God working in your heart? Convicting you of sin, drawing you to himself, calling you. You need to understand your sins have made you and God to be enemies. God is holy and He must punish your sin. But Jesus died to pay for sin. Put your trust in Christ and His work on the cross. Only He can save you from sin and from God's wrath. And this is serious, folks. As Paul said, we beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Well, Jesus not only brings peace between men and God, but He also brings peace among men. So as we come to our last main point, Jesus brings peace among men. We're going to look at two things here. There's a peace that happens now between men, and then one that comes later, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Peace among men can exist now. How? In the church. There is peace among men, and it is in the church. You see, because right now the believer has peace with God, and so each of us has peace with God if we trust in Christ, and so we can have peace with one another. So believing Jews and Gentiles in this church are, are, are brought together to be at peace with one another. And here in Ephesians 2, think about think back to verses 11 and 12, and what Paul talks about there is how you Jew and Gentile, remember how you were enemies. There were no two groups that hated each other more. There, was, there were no two groups where there was a bigger chasm. Because there was so much that was driving their hatred for each other. He says, remember that. But, notice what has happened for those Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Christ. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, there's that personal relationship, you who formerly were far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, Jews and Gentiles. And He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, that hatred, that animosity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What he's saying there, remember, is that the Jews misused the law to, as an excuse to hate Gentiles. That in himself, he, Jesus, might make the two groups into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. Jesus shed His blood to bring Jews and Gentiles first near to God. And then He brought Jews near to God. He brought Gentiles near to God. And as He did that, He brought them together. 
brought them together in the church. It is here in the church that Jew and Gentile can call each other brother, can worship side by side, can thoroughly love one another in a bond of peace, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. He reconciled them first to God and then to one another, and now they are at peace in the church, or should be, and not always are. But that is a peace that can be reclaimed at any point through repentance and pursuit, striving after that to maintain that bond of peace, as he says in Ephesians 4.3. Now, you say, okay, that's all well and good. Yeah, for the most part, we experience peace within the church and churches, even between churches sometimes, and as we know each other. And But all you have to do is look at the news today. And you see that not all men are at peace with one another, right? I mean, wars, hatred, hostility, strife, they all abound all over the world. You know, and at times it seems worse than others, but it's always there. And right now, it's pretty apparent around the world. Didn't those prophecies we looked at last week promise peace among men? Or what about Luke 2.14 that we just read earlier where the angels praise God saying, On earth peace among men. What about that? Did that part of the prophecy fail? Did it only apply to those in the church? Well, so the second thing we're saying about this, peace among all men will exist in the future kingdom. Peace among all men will exist in the future kingdom. Old Testament prophecies sometimes can be confusing because they will sometimes talk about what we now know as the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the second when he returns. It talks about how Messiah will save his people from their sins. You think about Isaiah 53, where it talks about how he has to die. And, you know, if you're on that side of the cross, you scratch your head, you're not sure what that means. He has to die, but yet we saw in Isaiah 9 and Zechariah 9 and these other places where it says he's going to reign. He's going to bring peace to the world. And sometimes those are all in the same passage. You think about Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, just two verses right there together. And sometimes it's kind of even mixed within a verse where you see both of those. And and so it was a bit confusing for the Jews because God wanted them to be looking for both and anticipating both that Messiah will save his people, but he'll also bring peace to the earth. And it's not until the New Testament that we can say and understand as Jesus taught His disciples and the Holy Spirit helped them to understand fully. Messiah had to come first to save us, to make us to be at peace with God. Remember, we talked about that. It's on that foundation that any peace among men must be built. He has to save us first. He has to make us to be at peace with God first. But He will return later and bring peace to the earth. And you see, the Jews, as they in their confusion about that, they also had another bigger problem. They didn't think they needed to be saved. They thought, as they told Jesus, oh, we're Abraham's descendants. We're good with God. 
You know, Jesus was like, well, I'm God and no, I'm not good with it. You're not good with me. You're actually more like your father, the devil, as he said there in John 8, remember. And so they thought, because, you know, we're Abraham's descendants, we're good with God, so we don't need salvation, we don't need peace with God, we're already at peace with God, they thought. So all we need is for Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans and set up peace here on the earth, set up his kingdom. That's all we need. And from Jesus' day until now, most Jews reject Messiah for this reason. But, there's another promise, which is built on the old promises. Paul tells us in Romans 11, 25 and 26, that there will be a mass conversion of Jews. He says there all Israel will be saved. Many Gentiles will also be saved. Old and New Testament talks about that. And when you see again, salvation has to happen first. For those who enter his kingdom, they have to be saved first. They don't get into the kingdom otherwise. But they can't be at peace otherwise. Unless they're first at peace with God. When Jesus returns bringing the kingdom of God, there will be peace throughout the earth. Zechariah 9.10 we saw last time also Isaiah promised in Isaiah 9-7 that in that day when Messiah brings his kingdom, he says, there will be no end to the increase of Messiah's government. No end to his government. His, his government will be extensive. It will cover the entire earth at every level thoroughly. And he also says that there will be no end of peace. Messiah will produce peace at every level, in every relationship, he will. There will be no end of peace when he reigns. So we said in Jesus, we lay hold of the peace God promises to those who trust Him. It's in Jesus that we acquire that, that we have that. Sinner, will you lay hold of this peace by putting your trust in Christ? Will you do that, sinner? Here on this day, we're talking about the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came in order to save us first and to give us peace with God and one day peace with men. Will you trust Him? O believer, will you take up your ministry of reconciliation that Paul talked about? We are each ambassadors for Christ. Will you take that job seriously and appeal to the sinners around you, calling them to be reconciled with God? I want to go back to a verse I just mentioned briefly, uh, Colossians chapter 1. There are a few verses there. Colossians one nineteen through 22 talking about this whole idea of peace and reconciliation and salvation and how it's focused on Christ and His cross, Paul says this, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. 
through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Sinner, that can be you. It's not yet. It can be if you trust in Christ. Believer, that is you. And as we come to the Lord's table, think about that and worship Him who through the blood of His cross has reconciled sinners to God. Reconciled you and me to God.